Welcome back to Romaniacs. The only good thing to come out of Brexit, as last week's guest AC Grayling tweeted. Well, us and the new European. Just one more and all this misery will have been worthwhile. I'm Dorian Linsky. To look at this week's events in the slow-motion car crash that is Brexit, I'm joined by two of our finest backseat drivers. Roz Taylor is research manager at the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission at the London School of Economics, and she's a hardcore Brexit wonk. Hi, Roz. How's your week? It's been very, very busy. Not that I've been sitting up late watching Spiral on, uh, be on a BBC iPlayer, but it's been very, very busy. <laughs> Good Euro drama credentials there. It's brilliant. I love it. Did you see that Society Mag Tatler has officially declared talking about Brexit at dinner parties as non-you? Nothing else is out of bounds, just Brexit. I didn't see that. Actually, I've, I have my quibbles about that. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I don't, I don't think uh, the uh, upper class is uh, necessarily that pro-Brexit, but we can go into that in more detail later on if you want to. <laughs> and also with us is our business expert and armchair Brexit analyst, Peter Collins. Hi, Peter. Hello. And when you're throwing a high-class dinner party... For As I do all the time, yes. ...aristocrats and oligarchs, and do you ban Brexit? Absolutely. There'll be no talk of Jacob Rees-Mogg over the turkey twizzlers and Vimto in my house. <laughs> tell you that. Very sensible. If you're a Romaniac Tatler reader, firstly, hello. Secondly, how about throwing some of the proceeds from your Stately Homes gift shop in our direction via the crowdfunding platform Patreon? Details to follow. But for those of us who have to work for a living, later we'll be going to looking at Brexit and work. How is this exciting project going to shape our working lives? What should we encourage our kids to study? And are we all going to be picking cabbages in Norfolk at 4am in November from 2019? Or is there a brighter future in store? With us to look at all this is Rachel Morankozov, a freelance employment consultant who's covered every aspect of labour policy, especially with reference to migration. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Welcome. So we, we, we ask a lot of our guests this on the optimismometer this week. Are, are you more or less sort of hopeful that we'll get the, a less painful version of Brexit or even no Brexit at all? I'm not hopeful at all. There they go. Um, <laughs> and I don't, it's simply because I don't know, I don't know what's going on. I don't think the government knows what's going on. There's no clarity around where we're going. So, sorry, not that hopeful. <laughs> I suppose. Join the club. <laughs> I suppose I find hope in the, in the fact that they don't know what they're doing. And so they might just accidentally do, the right do thing. what I want them to do. <laughs> Um, the classic Dorset reaction from Leave voters is it's about immigration and jobs, and I'm sure you saw that kind of word cloud where immigration was the big the big issue for Leave voters. But the more the Remain campaign talks about jobs, the less it seems to make a difference. Why, why is that a hard message to get across? I think simply because we have lacked uh, clear political leadership on immigration for so long, and I think that the trust that the public have in the government's ability to manage immigration has just uh, dissipated. Um, and if you look at the current net migration target the government has, which is simply ridiculous, that's a classic example of where you set a target, you miss it every year, um, and it further erodes the, the public's trust in your ability to manage migration. That's why control um, has played such a big, has really touched sort of a lot of voters' feelings about Brexit and was so persuasive. We'll be talking to Rachel more throughout the show, but before we dive into our Carnival brand tub of Brexit news, here's Roz with some quick messages. Yes, if you're a pro-EU baronet who's third in line to own the whole of Berkshire, or just a simple Europhile commoner like us on the panel, you can help the fight against Brexit by pledging us a few pounds a month via Patreon. Elegant Romaniacs t-shirts, mugs and bags will be yours, as well as early bird alerts on tickets for upcoming Romaniacs live shows. Our first date on Thursday, February the 22nd, sold out in a single weekend so becoming a Patreon is the best way to make sure you get your ticket find out more at romaniacs.com and if you're already a Patreon backer you can contribute to our EU friendly playlist of music that we'll be playing after the show 
when we'll be mingling with the uh, audience and sharing a joke about the common fisheries policy. <laughs> Patreons can see details at www.patreon.com slash RomaniacsCast. Thanks, Roz. Now it's time for your recommended weekly allowance of Brexit news. First up, Theresa May's categorical rejection of membership of the, or a, or any customs union. After a confusing weekend in which Home Secretary Amber Rudd told Andrew Marr that the government had an open mind about the customs union, and Brexiter Dominic Raab insisted on Sky that we would not be in a customs union in any form, the iron-willed Prime Minister showed her independence on Monday morning by caving into exactly what her minority of Brexiter MPs wanted. But the Tory infighting continued, and by Wednesday, rogue Remainer Anna Subri was urging May to get a spine and sack the estimated 35 hardcore Brexiters who are running government policy. If it comes to it, I'm not going to stay in a party which has been taken over by the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson, she said. They are not proper Conservatives. Here, here. <laughs> Says our resident proper Conservative, Peter. Um, this declaration on the customs union, I mean, that's that's obviously been sort of forced by the ultras, hasn't it? Yes, and it, it looks in itself like a victory for them. But I have some doubts. Um, you know, first of all, we're back to the impossible, that we have no membership of any customs union, supposedly, and yet we also still have this red line of there not being any uh, internal Irish border. In other words, cakeism it's in fantasy land, some that you can't, a combination of things you can't have. I thought it was interesting, I don't know if you saw the, the website Politico quoted some EU officials in Brussels as saying, yeah, yeah, she's just saying this now, she'll back down like she did with the Brexit bill and everything else, you know, it's just what she's saying today. And I noted also that you've got government sources saying, well, what we want is a customs arrangement already. Uh, so it's not the customs union, it's not our customs union, it's a customs arrangement. In other words, they're already preparing that sort of get-out clause, we hope, to allow them to see sense in the end and to, to remain in something like the customs union. Is this going to be another thing, Peter, that's all about transitional periods and that's going to be a get-out clause? In, indeed, it could, it could be the you know the trans exactly that we you know there's a different there'll be the difference between what we do in the transition and what we do after the transition and how long the transition lasts. Of course, the the EU position paper out today says it will end in December 2020, but then it's an it's you know it's an EU deadline on a piece of paper, and we know that EU deadlines on pieces of paper tend to get shifted anyway. So why do the hard Brexit minority in the government seem to be running things? Well. I'm not sure they're running anything apart from what Theresa May says today. I mean, they don't seem to be running the government because nobody seems to be running the government. <laughs> it's just there's just there's no government going on really. It's but, an automated uh, self-running government. Well, let's hope so. And you know, um, as J Jacob Rees-Mogg will point out to us, of course, the civil servants are running it anyway. Um, but at least that means that something somewhere, you know, wages get paid or whatever. Um, I'm just wondering though. There's there's looking at the, you know we're trying to dis dissect. Um, Theresa May's latest apparent caving in. Just try to Im imagine that she's actually more in control of the situation than she appears to be to us. She's saying to them, right, you want me to send David Davis to Brussels to say we want uh, the impossible. We want complete customs access, customs arrangement to give us completely free trade, but also no checks on the border in, in, in Ireland and no actual membership of the customs union. Therefore, we're free to do our own trade deals. Uh, David Davis will go. He'll come back and he say, Brussels won't give me this. 
Um, then Theresa May will say to the rebels, well, what are you going to do about it? We know that the, the EU is not going to agree to this. What's your proposal? A no-deal Brexit? Are you going to try and get that through Parliament? And the point is, maybe she's looking at what Anna Soubry and other people are rumbling about on the Conservative backbench, the Remain backbenches of the Conservatives, and realising that the, the, the ultras don't any longer have the, the option of pretending there's going to be a, a, a sort of hard Brexit, a, a no-deal Brexit. So maybe she's, she's kind of bluffing them back. I know this is a bit optimistic, but you is never know. She might, actually, fan she might have uh, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> she might have a cunning plan. <laughs> We're clutching at straws here, as ever. But, uh, Rachel, what does rejecting the customs union, if indeed this was uh, a kind of immovable red line, which which I doubt it is, what does that mean for sort of employment in general? Are there particular industries that are, are vulnerable? Uh, there are. I think um, it means a couple of things. Uh, first of all, Brexit. All the forecasts show that under any scenario, there's going to it's going to be a drag on economic growth, and it's hard to see that that won't trickle down then into jobs. For employers then and businesses, there are very specific costs to, to leaving the customs union. So uh, it, it's likely to cost them billions in terms of delays at customs and ports and the additional paperwork that it's going to um, it's going to it's they're going to face. Um, so. And, of course, there are specific um, sectors that are at risk. You're looking at tourism, the financial services, um, construction, manufacturing. So there are people that will argue that the growth in our potential exports and the new trade deals will create lots of new jobs. But as many economists will tell you, regardless of what their views are on Brexit, um, over a period of time, the impact of free trade deals um, on overall levels of employment in the UK are negligible. They're likely to be negligible or zero. Because every morning on the Today programme, which to my shame I still can't seem to switch over from... <laughs> um, there's always a kind of Brexiter going, new trade deals, and they get kind of rosier and rosier every day. And it's like, well, of course, when we get the new trade deals with the rest of the world, and we get this kind of like, this kind of monkey off our back. And it's sort of like this, this sort of crazed utopianism that, that there's just these new trade deals, and everyone's just waiting to give them to us as soon as the EU gets out of the way. Um, and that just seems to be the answer to every possible criticism is just, oh, well, we'll get better deals. Yeah, but 60% of what we currently export is to the EU or the countries that the EU has uh, trade agreements with already. They, they didn't mention that. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, and also there are good reasons why the EU has come unstuck with negotiating free trade agreements with the US and China and India, for example. And we're going to come across the same problems, whether it be regulatory convergence, whether it be loosening visa restrictions on Indian skilled workers. We're going to come across um, the same um, issues and it's going to take time. And having covered trade policy in some of these countries like Brazil and Southeast Asian countries, they're not free traders generally they're generally quite protectionist they're still enthralled to this infant industries myth that we have to make our industries more competitive by uh, shielding them from competition so they don't really want to buy uh, more British goods they don't want to strike a deal which will open the markets to British goods uh, and uh, you know as Rachel was saying it what tends to happen is that you don't get the uh, the, the extent of the of the trade opening that you expect it's down to more than just the trade deal on paper it's down to the companies and a good example of that is we don't need a better trade deal with China to do more trade with China because Germany has marvellous exports to China while remaining in the EU. 
it's because it's got the companies that know what to sell and, 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 and are doing a good job of it. Um, some of our companies are as well, but not as well as a German industry in general. Wouldn't it be amazing if some of these points were made by, say, the host, a host of the Today programme? Uh, indeed, yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> when uh, when both are saying this, well, stuff. I think the problem is that these guys are really not paid enough. Um, you know, it's a hard job, and maybe <laughs> if we paid them a bit more, that they'd do a better job. They just seem to sort of nod and go, "Yep, sounds legit." Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, meanwhile, Anna Subri, sort of our our, our sort of favourite rebel, I think, <laughs> because she's just sort of just says it doesn't just doesn't give a fuck. Um, what's she trying to achieve by telling May to sack the Brexit MPs? Because I mean. She can't. I mean, she she literally can't sack anybody. It seems. And now Anna Subri's threatened to resign the whip. Is she just kamikazing her way out of the party here? Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe she's just trying to keep our spirits up. But or maybe she's. We, try, she's don't get me wrong. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, but she. You know, maybe she is saying, "Well, we can rebel too." Um, you know, she can talk about quitting and and uh, w- walking out and, uh, into the sunset and so on. But maybe she is, say, being the sort of the, the loudest voice of the Remainer bench of the Conservative Party, which is quite substantial, and we shouldn't forget that, uh, and say, you know, we can talk, we can speak out too. We know that the government is very weak. We know that they can't do very much back to us because they need every vote that we, we can give them when we give it. So maybe maybe she is being a mirror image of the re-smogs of this world. I don't know. And also in... Um in the government, the phrase dream team was brutally abused like never before um, with the image of, uh, of Johnson, Gove and Mogg as the three. Early Larry and Moe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they went for three Brexiteers, but I think there's another kind yeah, of trio. Another, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, surely not. My heart says surely not, but is is that is that remotely possible? I, they couldn't. Even if they... It was it would be like a coup, wouldn't it? It would be like... Night of the, it would be a coup. And... Uh, impossible for them to get a push through the kind of Brexit I think that they were the kind of policies they wanted because as you say uh, the Tory party is short of votes okay it's got the DUP on side for a hard Brexit but it needs everybody it can and um, I can't you know I certainly can't see the Labour Party cooperating with Johnson, Gove and Mogg to push through Brexit under those circumstances and it would be impossible for them to push through their vision. There aren't the votes in Parliament. At least that's what I hope. It would be a dream team for Jeremy Corbyn I mean if you had (laughs) if you had Rees-Mogg and Johnson and Gove, you know, some combination of them in the, 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 the three great offices of state, yeah. that would not look very nice for the Conservatives' electoral prospects come the next election. It would look a lot rosier for Corbyn and co, given that they would not really broken out of their sort of, you know, level pegging with the Conservatives in the polls so far. Well, Mogg's had a busy week uh, smearing the entire civil service for the crime of producing analysis, which does not fit his narrative. After hapless Brexit minister Steve Baker was forced to withdraw an endorsement of Mogg's claim that the civil service were fixing the research to make Brexit look bad, Mogg just doubled down on his accusations. Dodgy research was, he said, politically advantageous for them in the past, and it is the same now. Yes, I do think they are fiddling the figures. No evidence necessary. He's hashtag just saying. (laughs) Ex-civil servants went ballistic. One former cabinet secretary, Andrew Turnbull, compared it to the trashing of the German civil service by the Nazis between the wars. And uh, Godwin's law was revoked at the end of 2016, so you're allowed to say that now. Another, Gus O'Donnell, said, of course, if you're selling snake oil, you don't like the idea of experts testing your products. But this seems kind of Trump-like, doesn't it? The enemy within, down with institutions. Well, indeed, I'm just surprised he didn't also have a go at the Queen for wearing that blue and gold hat at the opening of Parliament that looked like the EU flag. I mean, you know, if you're going to... Some things are off limits, Peter. Yeah. The Queen. (laughs) But, I mean, he, he did everything except just shout sort of fake news, sad, at the end of it. 
true. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah, it is. It is astonishing, and he's he's really going for broke, isn't he? But I, whether it's going to get him anywhere, I'm not sure. Because I think you know his. I don't know. He's, uh, we've we've heard an awful lot from him. Let's put it that way. And I, I think you can you can be overexposed. Uh, his, his agent needs to talk to him. <laughs> he's delighted us long enough. Are you? Are you saying that? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's. I mean, he's not. You know, conservative with a small C, is he? He seems to be. No. Um, I mean, he seems to have sort of conservative with a big C, not a small C. Yeah. But, you exactly. know, he's, he's, he just seems to be. Militant. And a few other things beginning to Oh, <laughs> Ooh, we don't use words like this, surely. No. Uh, no it's the only he, thing we can't he, say. It's because he can be. It's because he can be. When you when you come, and I don't like to get all kind of class war about this, and I'm not. But when you come from that kind of background that Rees Mogg comes from, and you are sitting on a large pile of money and property, you can afford to take risks. You can afford to take risks yourself politically. You can afford to take risks. With, about the policies you follow because you feel personally secure. What holds, what holds societies back quite often from radical change is fear, fear of unemployment, f- fear of depression, fear of what will ensue. And Rees-Mogg does not have those things holding him back because he doesn't, he doesn't have, uh, he doesn't fear that personally. And I think that's why you've got this paradox where an apparent conservative can still launch himself over the cliff. That's my theory. What I think is, is interesting is that Rees Mogg and Cove, particularly him, don't seem to realise how great this is for Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, John Landsman, all the ultra-left in the Labour Party, because they're thinking, great, by the time we take over, there'll be no institutions left for us to destroy. The socialist revolution will be untrammeled. I mean, you know, uh, and I'm not entirely... Being you flippant about for this. No, I'm not. No, I'm not being entirely <laughs> flippant about this because they will. If 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 we have a a, a Corbyn-led Labour victory at the next election, they will want to impose their will on institutions, you know, from the Bank of England to the, the civil service or whatever. And they, it will be great news for them if the job has already been done for them of completely trashing them and giving them, you know, taking away all of their independence and all all of their respect. Yeah, and you've got to remember that there's a section of the Conservative Party, the, what you might call the libertarianism, libertarian section that's a bit like the libertarians you, you have uh, in, in the US in particular, that don't like the state. Uh, they don't like ex- excessive state intervention as they see it. They don't like institutions like this uh, because they can't be changed, but also because they see them as dictatorial. Um, so that too plays into his worldview. <laughs> but civil servants are, in fact, um, rather well regarded by the public. Trust in the civil servants has apparently been rising since '83. It's doubled since then to 50%. In the same period, trust that ministers and politicians tell the truth has been flat at a, a generous 20 to 24%. In, indeed, so it indeed. seems like he's picking the wrong fight there. Yeah, I, well, indeed, the point is that you know he's getting an awful lot of airtime, as I've already said, oh, uh, but that doesn't again. mean his message is accepted by the public. You know, let's see what happens the next time there is a poll uh, looking at you know the respect for the civil service versus politicians. Um, it's just that you know it's this thing of balance. Is that you know there's all well, not, the, the, the BBC particularly is under this uh, enormous pressure, and it really is enormous pressure to balance one view with another. So so if you've got somebody who is a very vocal, hardline Brexiteer, you've got to keep shoving him in front of the cameras to give him his turn. But that doesn't mean people are accepting it in, in, in proportion to the amount of airtime he gets. Hmm. They should ask some questions, though. That would I be do think idea. the BBC's idea of balance is just so yeah, 
Yeah. It's so primitive, it's utterly failing. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to have balance on, on, on the facts, only on opinion. And that's the thing to remember is therefore you ask probing, you put the facts to people, whichever side they're on, and you do that relentlessly and you don't take any arguments that, you know, this is unfair if you if you're simply putting facts to them. And opinion is uh, cheaper than going out there and doing reporting uh, for a journalist. And I'm not suggesting the BBC is going down this direction, but when you're looking at budgets, it is much uh, easier to bring in people who are happy to appear uh, on and, and, and vent their views than to go out and do some really in-depth, serious journalism. And that's, I think, why uh, you, you see more and more of it in, in the journalistic culture in Britain, of that happening. I just, I just love the idea that democracy is being poisoned just to save money. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, we can spend that on survival kits. <laughs> uh, finally, two small and nasty stories from the fringes of the Brexit culture war. If you follow B-list Brexiter and failed London mayoral candidate Zach Goldsmith on Twitter, you'll have seen him tweeting an alleged death threat, which he says an 80-year-old constituent received. Did, did we see this? Indeed. Incredible. Oh. It's an impressive bit of work. The yeah. computer-printed letter says, if you attempt to take away part of someone's identity, there are consequences, and concludes, we are coming for you, we are going to kill you. It's signed the real 48%. So we just wonder who the fake 48% is. <laughs> it's like when there's a band and they kind of split up and it's got to be kind of like the, the real, basis the real dollar and, and the fake dollar. Well, whoever this person who sent this was, if indeed it was a real person, they clearly weren't on any of the anti-Brexit marches that I've seen. Nobody seems to want to kill anyone on those. No, they wanted to make good jokes on placards. Badly lacking in all forms of credibility. You know, talking about national identity isn't a, a strong point for people on the Remain side of the argument, let's face it. Mm. So that makes it, that undermines its um, uh, authenticity from the start. If you were this 80-year-old pensioner, first of all, why would you receive this death threat in yeah. the first place? Why would you give it to your MP rather than going straight to the police? And if your MP wanted to track down this evil person uh, and help the police to find that person, why would you publish the evidence on your Twitter feed rather than just mentioning it perhaps? Without it was suspiciously showing... neat as yeah. well, wasn't it? Was, it? Like yeah, it's, yeah. it looked fresh from the printer. It did not look like it, it had been poked through a door indeed, yeah. by some sort of like angry yeah. Michel Barnier fan. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. Straight <laughs> off the photocopier, yes. In the same week, a small band of masked protesters erupted a Jacob Rees-Mogg event at a university in Bristol. It was an ugly and largely meaningless spectacle, but it quickly degenerated into who threw the first punch and was this a setup? For the culture warriors on the tabloids, it was a two-for-one Ramona snowflake offer. <laughs> Um, does this, I mean, you could see it traveling around through, I would say, whereas I would have said perhaps a couple of years ago, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter, it's just among Twitter, you know. And, but the tabloids seem to take so much straight from, from there, like the social media controversies about, you know, student protesters just seem to go straight into the tabloids. As Roz was just saying, it's a lot cheaper than having reporters. Yeah. Well, it was always thus. I mean, does anyone remember when John Prescott hit somebody? I think it was in 2001 general election campaign. Uh, so that he got egged on a, on a mm. uh, campaign, on the campaign trail. And he just kind of instinctively whirled around and, and decked someone. It was, really, it was a really good punch, actually, really effective. When everyone talked about it for days. It was the only thing people remember about 2001 election <laughs> campaign these days. You know, it, it's, it's always going to get attention, politicians being. And that's why these students do it. Yeah. But this was, I mean, the, the punch seemed to come from the... Gammon faced man in the in the white shirt. So this, so the, so the situation there was unclear. But this is the third story out of three that Mog has made an appearance. Hmm. R- Rachel, what do you make of this man's current ubiquity? Is he going anywhere? I, I honestly don't know. Um, 
There's a part of me when I see him, though, that I quite like him. I think he's probably, if I met him in person, quite a nice person. I um, And I don't think whatever took place at that university, I think he handled it very well. Um, I don't know. I, I just don't know what to make of I, I suppose there is that thing, is that even though I think politically that he's he's very mm. sort of nasty and the way that he did with the civil servants, I mean, that doesn't that's not like something a good guy does but he sort of comes across as slightly kind of uh you know he's sort of fusty and pleasant and the spirit of old england and it does seem to me perhaps that the optics of angry young students versus this kind of pg woodhouse character perhaps sort of perhaps backfires that he just knows how to handle it he's not going to prescott them is he no Sadly, that would have been fun, actually. <laughs> Take that, you rot. <laughs> I, w- I would like to see this kind of, yeah, his, his sort of Walter the Softy fisticuffs. <laughs> now for a quick commercial message. The weather's awful, the news is worse, and numerous not very scientific studies have shown that now is the most depressing time of the entire year. What you need is a holiday. As a sophisticated cosmopolitan Europhile, you would, of course, want to visit the glories of mainland Europe while we've still got freedom of movement and while the pound is still worth more than half a euro. We recommend Greece, and specifically our friends at Everymatic, the boutique travel concierge that everyone can afford. Whatever your budget, whatever your tastes, Alex and Stevie at Everymatic can put together the perfect Greek holiday for you. Our producer Andrew Harrison's been using Everymatic for years. What's the story here? Uh, well, people think that uh, concierge travel is only for the uh, the super rich, and I am not the super rich. But Everymatic make it affordable for everyone, and the service is personal and it's brilliant. They really know the islands, they visit them all, and they research them in depth. They'll build up the right holiday for you according to your personal preferences. Uh, Alex is dual nationality, Greek and British, and she's brilliant to deal with. Um, they've sorted out everybody from families on a budget to actual proper global stars, and they're really good at basically talking to you, find out what you like, and, and building the whole thing around you. Um, we've been to Paris and Antiparos, Naxos, Seraphos, places we'd never go to, and it's always fantastic. And, of course, you've got to remember, who knows what it's going to be like after 2019. We might be in gigantic queues trying to get into mainland Europe with people from the rest of the world. So now, this is definitely the best time to visit Greece, uh, and you can have a pint of mythos with uh, Yanis Varoufakis if you run into him. If you run into him, that's not actually guaranteed as part of the booking. but I'm sure that they would see what they could do. Okay. So drop them an email at alex at everymatic.com. Whatever your budget, they'll fix you up with the best holiday you've ever had. That's alex at everymatic.com and tell her Romaniac sent you. Our special guest today is the employment expert Rachel Marangazov, who's written extensively about what Brexit is going to mean for the world of work and about the migration issue that did so much to shape the referendum result. Thanks for coming on the show, Rachel. Do you think we're getting to grips with the kind of the real employment issues of, of Brexit and really kind of, you know, getting down to the, to the details and what needs to be fixed? Um, or is it still the sort of the rhetoric that was around at the time of the referendum? I, th- I think for me, no. And I think there are sort of three issues that, that as, is lacking some discussion. The first is the, the potential for unemployment to increase, at least in the, um, the short term, because, of course, all the forecasts are that Brexit's going to be a drag on the economy and that's going to filter down into jobs. Um, I also don't think there's enough of focus on those industries that will be uh, vulnerable if we leave the, the customs union. In the Lancaster House speech of, that Theresa May gave, she spoke of some kind of bespoke customs union where there would be unique carve-outs for vulnerable sectors like the, the, the car industry, but that's clearly not going to happen. Um, and thirdly, I think we need to discuss what's going to happen with the services sector, which you know forms 80% of our economy and could have a potential knock-on effect on lots of jobs um, here in the UK 
and what we do about that, because that's not covered in the customs union, which only covers goods. Um, and if we could strike out on our own, that could have a, some effect on employment. And I don't think that's going to be, that's discussed enough. And whether it's possible, we can do that, because that would be a relative novelty to have some kind of services only arrangement, uh, which doesn't really exist uh, in many parts of the world. So, um, yeah, I think we get caught up a lot in this sort of, you know, this rhetoric around who's going to pluck our fruit and our veg and... We don't. The debate seems to have stagnated somewhat, and there are more important issues that we need to be getting down to the nitty gritty. And I don't know why we're not debating it. Is it because it's boring? Uh, it's too complicated? I don't know. But we need to be having that debate. Given the fact that the city, the financial services sector, which is huge and is not just limited to the city of London, and a huge part of Britain's sort of export earnings, given the the the, the extent to which it could be affected by losing the sort of automatic access to the EU market, I'm a bit surprised that they're not that we're not hearing something at sort of two or three higher notches of volume from the city. No, but they're complaining, but I would have thought that given the the risks that they're facing, they, they would be doing a lot more. And of course, these are very rich organisations that can pay for an awful lot of lobbying. Why aren't they doing so, do you think? I don't know. I think a lot of them are, though, making contingency plans um, and plans to move certain key staff out of London if needs be. Uh, it might also be because Barney has not been entirely clear. I mean, he did sort of give an indication last year that we will lose our passporting rights and that will have a big impact. But then he sort of seemed to give uh, another message that, well, actually, uh, it depends on the deal that we get. But, you know, I think they are making their contingency um, plans. and I suppose that the, the, the workforce are very foot, footloose people. Even mm. the British workforce are the sort of people who say, all right, we'll move to Paris, we'll move to Amsterdam, we'll keep a place in London, we'll take the Eurostar or whatever. And therefore, I guess their risk, their risk of losing their key people, which is their most important thing, isn't that great, I guess, yeah? Yeah, and many of their stuff will be from the EU, so it might just be a case of going back home, you know, um, and uh, we'll already hold, uh, you know, another passport, so it won't be that big a deal to some of them. Um, Jeremy Corbyn talks about a jobs first Brexit, as has uh, Caroline Fairburn, the CBI Director General. What does that actually mean? I mean, it's a good slogan, who does not want jobs first, but what would that involve? I don't know what it means. I think what it means is putting economics before politics. So talking about investment, mm. jobs, economic growth, prosperity before some kind of illusion of greater control that we're going to get. Um, at, at the moment, it's sort of being argued that leaving the customs union and being free to negotiate our own uh, trade deals with other countries will create more jobs in the UK. But, you know, all the evidence suggests this is going to be incredibly um, difficult. It's going to be time-consuming. I think it means putting economics before politics. But I mean, with one reason I think where you can't separate the two is because of the, of the discussion around jobs. Because there's been a huge volume of research, and it's pretty much established that's shown that migrants don't take jobs, and in fact, their work adds to the economy, ends up creating jobs. And I think perhaps if that argument was accepted by most voters, we'd be living in a in a very different country. Why is that such a hard thing to to get across? Because it's not as if the data is particularly contentious. I just think there's been for so long now, and I'm talking about over a decade, there's been such a vacuum of um, decent debate about this and discussion around this that people are are more willing. You've got UKIP stepping into that uh, that vacuum to fill people's heads with all sorts of things. I remember going to various parts of the country 
10, 11 years ago and talking to white British communities about immigration and specifically Eastern European immigration. And they were coming up with all these sorts of things. They're taking our jobs, our housing, they're keeping wages low and all the rest of it. And I remember walking away going, gosh, these people are a bit, this, is, this isn't true, the facts don't bear out. But what's happened since then? There's been nothing, there's been no leadership by the government to come in and, and quell those people's fears about um and myths about this and local authorities at local level don't have the capacity to do that so for 10 years i just sort of look back now it's easy to do and in hindsight for 10 years that vacuum has existed you've got ukip not even ukip you've got people like gordon brown i remember talking about you know job british british jobs for british workers you know and coming in filling people's heads with these things and I think that just doesn't hold anyone. I think a lot of people do actually believe and understand that migrants don't take jobs and hold down wages. But I just think a lot of people just don't care anymore because control has become um, such a fixed um, notion in people's heads and such a persuasive thing that that trumps everything else. We must take control of our borders. And Brexiteers, one of the things I wanted to ask you is Brexiteers argue, uh, argue that the, the UK workforce is going to be able to adapt to the new kinds of jobs that are going to emerge post-Brexit, um, hopefully. Uh, but but I'm not sure, are we in that good a position? Because our productivity is pretty rubbish in comparison with other um, comparable countries. And our vocational training is not great either. The apprentice, uh, apprenticeships scheme doesn't really seem to be all that. Further education is kind of cut back a lot. So are, are we actually ready? Is it going to be that easy for people to retrain? Because historically, that has been a real problem. I mean, look at the 80s and the communities that suffered when the mines closed down. Can we, can we really retrain that fast? Uh, no. Um, and I, I think that I don't know what jobs um, these people are talking about when they talk about the, the post-Brexit is going to create lots of new jobs. Um, and what are these jobs? Are they jobs that, you know, in customs, in border control, um, Brexit lawyers for the government departments? I don't know. But... Um, you know, there was one study that was done, I think, commissioned by the Confederation of British Industry that showed that that, that the most vulnerable um, sectors will be hit to the tune of uh, 950,000 job losses. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think we're ready. I think it will take time. People talk about rebalancing the economy, and you know, I'm sceptical. Um, and I think if you want the work, UK workforce to adapt, you would need an industrial strategy that prioritises massive investments in skills acquisition and train retraining by employ the employers and the government. Um, you'd need improvements in pay and working conditions for jobs that are currently deemed unattractive for whatever reason. Um, and we're not just talking strawberry picking. I mean, if you look at nurses and how many are leaving the profession at the moment, it's staggering. Um, or industrial subsidies and other incentives to encourage employers um, to invest in labour-saving technology. So that's going to be painful. Right. And expensive. <laughs> and expensive. Very, yeah. very expensive. Yeah. And employers are not likely to fork that, that, uh, those costs. And do you think there's going to be a, a last-minute sort of exodus, sort of brain drain for um into the rest of the EU um, before Brexit Day? Do you think a lot of people are going to think? Because if I was I'm 25, off. which I'm not, sorry, listeners, if I was 25, I would be out of here. <laughs> I really would. Uh, because I, I, do, I do worry about what the future prospects are going to be for people of that age. 
I don't think there will be, and simply because we've got a transitional period. So I don't think there's going to be a mad rush before Brexit Day for people to leave because they know there's a transitional period. And if we're talking about a brain drain, lots of those people will already be making other plans. They will be trying to dig out mums and dads or grandmothers that have a passport or a link to another mm. passport. They'll be making other mm. arrangements by now. So I don't think they'll be waiting till the very last minute. And finally, what would you advise a graduate or someone leaving sixth form now to... Um, which part of the economy should they enter? What's going to be the last job standing in Brexit Britain? <laughs> Regardless of Brexit, I would give them the same advice, and that is do something you love um, and you enjoy, because the chances are you're going to be good at it, especially if you're bright. And if you're good at it and you're bright, you'll hopefully stand a good chance uh, regardless of Brexit. There's my my optimistic note. <laughs> that is optimistic. Yes. It's- it's, it's pierced the gloom that we've been carefully maintaining throughout the show. We can cut that bit. Thanks, Rachel. We're coming to the end of the show, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a grim old week. So in true Alan Partridge style, we're going to keep it light with a new semi-regular feature called Brexiter or Romaniac, in which I throw out famous names, and the panel have to decide if they're a Remainer or a Lever. Mm. They haven't heard these names before. No. They're going to be as surprised as you, the listener. We're going to start off with classic comedy characters. Go with your gut, although if you've got a hypothesis. Okay. David Brent. Mm. Uh, he's going to be a lever, isn't he? I think. But he might change his mind. True. I think he might go with the mate to impress. Depends where the kind of which way the tide in the office is going. Yeah, that's what yeah. I think. Is you know the like, office the office will probably be quite levy, and therefore he'll try to impress the boys by. But they might talk to Tim yeah, and Dawn true. and go. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm going for Remainer. Okay. Finchy. Well, he is arch lever bastard, isn't he? I mean, he's Britain a, first. He's a wonderful, wonderfully horrible character, isn't he? The, the guy who plays him deserves a reward because he was just so vile, wasn't he? And therefore, we think he's a lever. <laughs> He'd be retweeting Aaron Banks a lot, wouldn't That's he? That's it. Uh, Basil Fawlty. Oh, oh, oh. well, I don't know. Do we even need to go near that. Do we, need, do we even need to answer that? Well, he's now writing uh, leader columns for the Telegraph. It seems yeah. about Germ- the Germans, though. Yes. Okay. So I, th- I think he's on, on the other hand, you know, he does like he, he he needs to keep the hotel going. True. And you know, foreign guests. Well, on the other hand, yeah, maybe maybe British guests are best. But but he will he will be worried about the impact on tourism. Let's face it. Well, Sybil would be a Remainer, I think. Sybil she would was be the a sensible Remainer. half of the thing. Yeah. She would insist that. Um, but that poor Manuel Spanish. Stayed in, yeah. Yeah. I'm worried that faulty towers yeah. is one of the reasons that we voted to leave the European <laughs> Union. It's just <laughs> making us uh, not not trust employees from the continent. <laughs> Nathan Barley. Never, now I've never seen that one, so it's for, uh, it's for young people, apparently. <laughs> so. Nathan Barley, I think, would be a um, Remainer, but there's a certain kind of, uh, you know, optimism. He, he might he might flirt with the idea of um, of leaving. I don't but think only he'd have a... noticed there was a referendum. Yeah. On. <laughs> Gavin and Stacey and their families. Mm. So I think Uncle Bryn would be a Remainer. I, I've, I've got that feeling he'd be a sensible Remainer. Um, uh, Smithy and his girlfriend probably leavers, I'm guessing. Gavin, all his friends, all his family. Yep. There is nowhere more Brexit. Maybe Stacey and her family would be remain. Maybe they wouldn't, if they're making the series now, they'd never have got together because Stacey's family would have been so remain and she would have turned up and found them all so Brexity and gone back to Wales. Detectorists. 
Ooh, um, I'm unfamiliar with this television program. Okay. I've seen a couple of episodes <laughs> of it. I th- I think they I think they would tend towards leaviness. I feel, although they could be talked out of it. By I actually thought of this quite a lot while I was watching it because it's this wonderful kind of lyrical sort of gentle comedy about the um, you know about English countryside and tradition. And then as soon as like I started to think of it in political terms, it ruined it for me. <laughs> so I just think they they would they just didn't they didn't know this. There's no referendum in the land of detectorists because it was like literally the only thing that made me feel good about England <laughs> in about the last two years. I thought, oh right, it's nice. I suppose cause it's, I mean it's hard to do racist metal detecting. <laughs> I'm sure some, somebody's given it a try. I'm sure. But, uh. Fleabag. Remainer, undoubtedly. Uh, she's she's uh, she's very Remain. I mean, open to all kinds of new experiences. Up to a point. <laughs> uh, let's not get into that. Um, so, yeah, a definite, definite Remainer. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Rachel Marangazov for terrifying us about the future of work, and thanks to Ross Taylor and Peter Collins as ever. This week's Europhone sign-off is in German, and it's from listener Maria Brooks. Schade, dass eure Verhandlungsdelegation nicht besser ist als eure Nationalelf. Playing us out is Corner Shop with Demon is a Monster, available now on all download stores and Spotify, while we give a shout-out to our Patreon supporters. Thank you from the bottom of our traitorous hearts to Alan Robinson, Lachlan McCauley, Nigel Rumsey, Lewis Godfrey and Henry Scowcroft. It's thanks from me to the mysterious Dr. Dan. Graham J. Layton, Ian Mockford, Dominic Mitchell and James Steele. And I'd like to thank Ken Colgan, the very Ibiza-sounding Seb P, David Bickley, Sam Evans and Graham Shaw. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor and Peter Collins. Studio production was by Jack Claremont and the producer was me, Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.